At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. To join with us in that. So at this time, I want to welcome up Mr. Andy Wisman, my friend, my brother in Christ. God knew when we got this schedule that my voice would be nearly gone. And uh, he also knew that this is exactly the topic that God had uh, led Andy to be able to preach on. But it's a tough topic. It's one that is challenging. Every single one of us can relate to what we're going to discuss today in some capacity. And so my prayer is that we receive this message We receive the word of God. We're challenged. One thing I love about our church is we don't shy away from scripture. Let the scripture speak. Let the scripture speak. We're just going to deliver it to the best of our ability. But ultimately, we want the word of God to reign supreme in our lives and in this world. And so I'm going to pray for Andy before he brings the word today. God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you that we can come together and laugh and celebrate even if we're five or ten pounds heavier after Thanksgiving. Uh, But, God, we just know that uh, you have given us uh, weeks like this of gratitude and thanksgiving to remember our family and friends, those who are with us today, those who have passed on before us. And so, Father, I pray right now as we're here, we're gathered, as we dig in your word, Father, prepare our hearts, work on our hearts. Let our hearts be receptive to your word. Let us not uh, be hardened of heart when we hear your truth. And let us remember that, that we are in the hands of you. We are at the clay in your hands. Shape us and shift us. Don't let us shape and shift your word, your truth. Let it shift and shape us. And, and Father, if there needs to be conviction, if there needs to be challenge, let this be the moment. And so I pray for my brother Andy as he brings the word. Let him be filled with your spirit. And let every word that he utters be exactly what you want him to. We love you so much, and we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, Winston. You cannot slander human nature. It is worse than words can paint it. When I was in my early 20s, I thought I had everything figured out. I got my bachelor's degree, I got a great job, I was at a great church, and I thought I had a great relationship with Jesus Christ. I thought I was all set. And then, at the right moment, at the right time, God exposed me for who I really was. God took this clean and tidy life that I thought I had made for myself and exposed it as an idle and dangerous lie. All it took was reading 13 words. You cannot slander human nature. It is worse than words can paint it. What was the idol and lie that I held near and dear to my heart? 
it was this, that I was fine, and it was everyone else around me that was messed up. I'm sure no one else knows that feeling of thinking that way, but follow me here. It was at that moment that the Holy Spirit gripped my heart and convicted me of this, that I bottled up my anger from being wronged in the past. I looked down upon those who wronged me. I was blind to having wronged others, and I did not forgive others unless it was convenient or benefited me in some way. Not only did I not resolve conflict biblically, I was conflicted within myself as well. Frustration, anxiety, anger. What was I to do? With my ugliness set before me, I realized that I was ill-equipped to handle this on my own. And if you can relate to this in any way, what are you to do? Today is the last week in our series called Conflicted, Pursuing Peace, in a cancel culture. For the last four weeks, we've had the privilege of Jesus giving us a view of the characteristics of life in God's kingdom community. So far, we have seen that Jesus defined these characteristics as being humble in pursuing dependence on God, removing your own sin while not leading others to sin, watching out for one another by not neglecting each other, and pursuing those who wander away, and that Christian relationships pursue repentance and reconciliation individually communally, and congregationally. So that brings us to today's message, the last in this series. As we look at the closing verses of Matthew 18, we will see that the big idea for today is that God's family forgives as they've been forgiven. God's family forgives as they've been forgiven. And I don't expect a lot of amens from what I have to say today because this is a difficult topic that we all struggle with. But turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And the words will also be up on the screen behind me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
So the context of today's passage is directly connected to last week's message where Jesus was teaching his disciples how to resolve conflicts stemming from sin, one believer to another. The first step, if you recall, is to talk to the offender alone in the hope of privately resolving the issue and restoring and reconciling the relationship. If the offender does not listen, the second step is to bring one or two more people along for a second confrontation to establish the charges against the offender in hopes of resolving and reconciling. If the offender refuses to listen even then, the matter should be taken to the congregation and leadership. And if even that doesn't work, the church should treat the offender as an unbeliever to be excluded from fellowship until they repent. And while that may seem harsh, the ultimate goal in all of those steps is reconciliation and restoration of the relationship while not tolerating sin. All of this leads to today's passage that starts with Peter's question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter was not being sarcastic when he asked this question. Within Judaism, they observed sections of the book of Job and Amos, and from those came to understand that forgiving someone three times was sufficient to have a forgiving spirit towards someone else. By asking if seven times was enough, Peter thought that he was actually being generous in his forgiveness to someone. Jesus' answer revealed what the relationships in the kingdom of God look like in actuality. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or depending on your translation, the Greek could also be read as 70 times seven. Now, Jesus' point is not to get into the actual numbers, whether it's 77 times or 70 times seven equal 490, so that you can keep track, and if that person offends you, that 491st time, oh, it's time. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus' point is that in contrast to Peter's generosity of forgiving someone seven times, Christians are to forgive without limit or keeping count, even losing count of the wrongs. While the world shows no limit to hatred and vengeance, so among Christians there's to be no limit to mercy and forgiveness. Jesus then expands on his teaching of forgiveness in verse 23 by offering a parable. And while most of us have heard of parables before, it's important to know what a parable actually is, biblically speaking. A parable in the Bible is simply a story that may or may not have actually happened in real life, but it teaches a kingdom principle as its central point. And Jesus does that here. Our parable tells of a king settling accounts with his servants. One owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents was an absolutely un fathomable amount of money for someone to owe another person. And depending on the source that you read from, 10,000 talents today equates to about 3.5 to $6 billion owed. The point is, is that the servant could not possibly repay the debt to his king. The king's response was to order that the servant, his wife, and his children be sold. Now, don't get hung up on that. In the ancient world, that was actually a common practice by kings used to punish those who racked up debts that they couldn't possibly repay to the kingdom. It was an effort to say, don't do it, don't do it, and if you do do it, this is what you can expect to have happen. Either way, this servant was in deep, deep trouble. Verse 26 says the servant fell to his knees, begging for mercy, 
have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. The servant was so desperate that he even made an empty promise that he could not possibly keep to the king. The king responds in a dramatic and incredible way, though, in verse 27. It says, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king responded to the debt of the servant not by doing what the servant deserved, but instead chose to be merciful, giving him something he didn't deserve, in forgiving the entire debt that was owed to him. How the servant then responded shocked Jesus' Jesus's audience and should rightfully shock us as well. The servant went out, found a fellow servant that owed him money, and demanded payment while choking him. His fellow servant responded the same exact way that the first servant responded to the king. Have patience, and I will pay you. The first servant refused and had the other man thrown in prison. The first servant's response to forgiveness is absolutely horrendous. But how do we respond to opportunities to forgive other people? As we observe the first portion of this parable, Jesus shows us that the kingdom of God is that he is merciful and forgiving of our sins. Therefore, we are to treat others likewise. And that leads to our first point today, that forgiveness offers to others what you have received. Forgiveness offers to others what you have received. I want you to take a moment to think about a time when you received forgiveness and mercy when you least expected it. Perhaps you owed a large sum of money to a family member or a friend and they ended up forgiving the debt out of nowhere. Perhaps you heard gossip about someone, passed the gossip along and treated that person poorly only to find out that the gossip was false and the person forgave you. Perhaps you lied to someone and they forgave you, not holding it against you. Perhaps you were at fault for a fight with someone and they reconciled with you instead of the other way around. Perhaps you got into a car accident that was your fault and the other driver refused to be paid for the repair. That last one happened to me. I'll never forget, in my early 20s, a car accident that I caused. My mother teaches piano lessons out of the home and she had a student and parent over. And I was leaving my parents' house and I backed up out of the driveway and backed my back bumper into the quarter panel right above the wheel well of this parent's car and causing a nice indentation and scrape. I went through every single negative emotion possible. Shock turned into panic, panic turned into frustration, frustration turned into anger, and then anger into anxiety. I went back into the house, brought the parent out, and I showed the dad the damage that I had done. He looked at it and he said, Huh, that'll buff out. Don't worry about it. He shook my hand and he went back in the house. And I was standing there kicking myself, asking myself, how could you be so stupid to hit a parked car that is not moving? You were the one moving. And then it just hit me. Did he literally just say that'll buff out? Don't worry about it. I didn't know who this man was. But he forgave me in such a way that it has stuck with me as a core memory to this day. And he had no reason to do that other than out of the goodness of his heart. 
As Christians, forgiving others is not an option. It is a necessity and command from God. But why is that? In God's larger story of redemptive history, the big picture here is that Christians forgiving others offers unbelievers and believers alike an example of the gospel message in God forgiving the sins of those who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior because of his life, crucifixion, and resurrection. But forgiveness goes against every desire of our flesh and our personal sense of justice. After all, we've been wronged and they should pay, right? Why should I absorb the pain and loss when this should have never happened? Besides, won't forgiving the offender just reinforce in their mind that they got away with it and that it's all okay? After World War II, C.S. Lewis wrote in his masterpiece, Mere Christianity, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive as we had during the war. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. We love the idea of being forgiven, but we hate the idea of forgiving others. And I want to be sensitive in loving each and every one of you today. Each one of us has a story to tell. Some of you have been abused by a parent, spouse, loved one, friend, or even acquaintance. Some of you have experienced spiritual abuse and church hurt by leadership or fellow members of a church. Some of you experienced the pain of divorce. Some of you have had loved ones murdered in cold blood. Some of you have been beaten down and dismissed by your employer. The list of offenses is endless in this room. Forgiveness is hard, and yet we're called to do it. Now, I know that talking about these traumas may have just taken you back to your place of hurt. I want to invite you back here to experience and be offered scripture, encouragement, and healing. You may very well be thinking, are you telling me I must forgive that person? The hard but loving answer is yes, you must forgive that person, totally. And it's gonna be hard. For just a moment, I want you to think about the person that you have struggled to forgive and haven't been able to yet. We all have that one person, if not more. Think about them as I read these two passages. The first is Matthew, from Matthew 6. This is Jesus teaching his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we ha also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Second passage is from Luke 23. Jesus was being crucified and mocked by the Roman soldiers. In verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The question that we are ultimately confronted with is, what does it even mean to totally forgive? 
Now, based on how the Father forgives believers for their sins and how Jesus taught his disciples to forgive, I'm telling you that to totally forgive someone is to release your right to punish the person who hurt you. In his book, Total Forgiveness, Pastor R.T. Kendall said, the ultimate proof of total forgiveness takes place when we sincerely petition the Father to let those who have hurt us off the hook, even if they have hurt not only us, but also those close to us. How is your prayer life? Is it robust with consistent prayer to God, independence and surrender to him for the things that you can't control and need his intervention for? Or is it drier than a desert, devoid of growth and beauty? Petition your heavenly father in prayer to forgive those who have wronged you. And let me tell you, from my personal experience, Sometimes forgiving someone can be a daily exercise, especially when they repeat the same offense over and over and over again. It's difficult. Billy Graham said, you cannot pray for someone and hate them at the same time. Even if you are asking God to restrain their evil actions, you should also be praying that he will change their hearts. Only eternity will reveal the impact of our prayers for others. The more often that you pray for the person who has hurt you, the more you will find that God is softening your heart, reminding you of who you were before God saved you. Dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That was us before God saved us. Just as Jesus told Peter to forgive 77 times or 70 times 7, we are to totally forgive without counting the number of times as a way of expressing how the Father forgives us for our sins. Looking back to Jesus' parable in the text, the first point of this parable is that the gift of salvation through the forgiveness of sins is so great that it cannot be measured or compared to anything else that we can fathom. The second point of the parable is that unless we are merciful and forgiving to others as God has been to us, well, we've just missed the point completely. If God's mercy has not resulted in a changed heart condition, we are not saved, and we will be liable for our sins before God the Father. That leads to our second point, which is that the Father will judge those who don't forgive. The Father will judge those who don't forgive. Join me again in Matthew 18, starting in verse 32. And the words will once again be up behind me. Then his master summoned him, the servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The conclusion of this parable is deliberate and without any confusion. The king that had forgiven the first servant heard what had happened to the second servant, summoned the first servant who had been forgiven, and he righteously judged him for not forgiving his fellow servant of the lighter debt that was owed by showing mercy. The king then delivered the servant to the jailers until the entire 10,000 talent debt 
would be repaid. Jesus then warned his disciples that they would be judged by the Father without forgiveness if they did not forgive their brother from their hearts. The Bible mentions the heart almost a thousand times. The context of referring to the heart is that it is that spiritual part of us where our emotions, our desires, and our will dwell. It is the very core of our being, which is why the entirety of the Bible puts such an emphasis and high priority on us having a pure heart before God. When I think of a lack of forgiveness, do you know what the lowest hanging fruit illustration possible is for this that I can think of? Politics. Having differing politics with someone has become one of the fastest and easiest ways to vilify, dehumanize, and ignore that they are made in the image of God just like we are. In some cases, Christians will use politics to question the salvation of one another without forgiveness or mercy. Whether someone is a Christian or not, it has become common for us to cancel friends, family, and acquaintances simply because of politics. But what example did Jesus provide for us? There were documented political differences even amongst his 12 disciples that would become the apostles. In Matthew 10, Matthew describes himself as the tax collector and one of his fellow disciples as Simon the Zealot. Zealots were zealously against the Roman government and tax collectors worked for the Roman government. Now, did the 12 men who had become the apostles fight with each other? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Were they to forgive each other and their brothers? Yeah, absolutely. Was who Jesus chose as his 12 disciples deliberate to show their differences? Also, absolutely. When we do not forgive others as the Father has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, this is exactly what we do. We hold grudges, we seek vengeance, we point fingers and remind ourselves constantly of our pain in holding the offense over their heads. When we do this, in our flesh we feel empowered and we feel a sense of control over that other person. Yet when we do this, we're playing God. King David, after having had one of his best men, Uriah, killed on the front lines of battle so that he could steal his wife Bathsheba, for himself, wrote Psalm 51, which begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David certainly understood that he had hurt Uriah's family by killing the husband, his, one of his best friends, and taking his wife. But he also understood that God is the ultimate judge over all sin. When we hold the sins of others over their heads, we play God as the ultimate judge, as if the hundred denarii that person owes us is greater than the 10,000 talents each of us owe to God. As sinners saved by grace, thanks to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God forgiving our sins should lead to an incredible transformation of the heart. This transformation is evident by a changed life that offers the same mercy and forgiveness that we have received from God. 
What Jesus was saying is that if we do not grant forgiveness to others, it shows that our hearts are minimizing our own heinous sin. And we have not properly understood God's mercy and forgiveness at all. It shows that our hearts react with anger rather than responding with mercy and forgiveness. In Matthew 5, Jesus is preaching the greatest sermon ever preached in the Beatitudes and said this in regards to anger. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The Father will judge those who do not forgive. So then, we are called to forgive and reconcile, if at all possible, as much as it depends on you. And we must wrestle with this in our hearts. When dealing with conflict, our flesh wants the opposite of what God requires of us. In our hearts, our fleshly hearts, we think, burn it down. Easy. Annihilating is easy. Raising things to the ground is easy. Trying to fix what, what's broken is hard. Hope is hard. What would it look like if we, as the body of Christ, really believed in the power of forgiveness? And I mean really believed it. Now, I want to be crystal clear in what forgiveness is and is not. Because as Christians, we've kind of taken a page out of the world's understanding of forgiveness, and it needs to be set straight. Not just by the, well, primarily by the word, but also just in our basic understanding and in our heart. Forgiveness is not approving of what the person did. It is not excusing or denying what the person did. It is not justifying or being blind to what the person did. Forgiveness is not pardoning what the person did so that there are no legal consequences. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. It takes two to reconcile. So attempt to reconcile as much as it depends on you, but certainly also forgive. Forgiveness is not forgetting, refusing to take the wrong seriously, or pretending that we are not hurt. Finally, forgiveness is not immediate. It is very difficult and may require prayer to ask God to help you forgive the person each and every day. And that's what I've experienced, and it is hard but in the end, God wrestles your heart and points to who you were before Christ so that you can have compassion. Forgiveness is being aware of the wrong and still forgiving. Forgiveness is choosing to keep no record of wrongs in love. Forgiveness is refusing to punish the person. Forgiveness is not gossiping about the wrong, but instead being merciful and gracious. Forgiveness is the absence of bitterness towards the person and the absence of resentment towards God for allowing it to happen. Finally, forgiveness is a transformed heart condition. Pastor R.T. Kendall told a story about how many years ago there was a television series that depicted Christians forgiving those who had hurt them. The producer, who was not a Christian, was profoundly moved. He said that he could take or leave a church sermon, he could, but he could not ignore this. Something must be happening in their lives, he said. It is so unnatural for a person to forgive those who hurt them and to desire reconciliation that there is no greater testimony to the lost. 
Let's be a people that thinks the best of others and each other until they prove otherwise. Don't allow the offenses of others to rob you of joy or to keep you locked endlessly in sorrow, lament, anger, or vengeance. If you're a Christian struggling to forgive, may I encourage you to go to God in prayer to give you the strength to forgive and then to pick up the phone to try and reconcile, if at all possible, as much as it depends on you. I know there are some unhealthy people that have hurt you. You can't control that, but you can control if you forgive and try to reconcile, if it's healthy. Especially if it's someone here at this church. We are not perfect, but we must forgive and we must try to reconcile with each other in love. The Holy Spirit will guide you and God will be glorified through this labor of love. If you're here today and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to today to admit your sins and repent before God, believing and confessing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Receive that forgiveness. You can take that promise of forgiveness to the bank. Praise God through Jesus Christ for that. As believers, let's show the power of the kingdom of God by showing them, showing everyone, that God's family forgives as they've been forgiven. Imagine for a moment your offender repenting, receiving God's forgiveness, and they enter heaven and meet you. Imagine what it was like when the apostle Paul died and he entered God's glory and he was met with a chorus of cheers from the martyrs that he had killed. That's the gospel message. And that's what we are called to do through forgiveness. If you need help with forgiveness through prayer, we have a prayer team that would love to meet with you, pray with you, and even teach you how to pray if you need it. They'll be found on either side of this platform at the end of the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Even though for many of us there isn't much to be thankful for, even um, with the difficulties that we have in life, Lord, we know that you are good, but we sometimes forget it and we act as if it's not true. Please forgive us for that. And Lord, you know the pain in our hearts. You know each and every one of our stories. You hear the cries that have gone up to you as a result of our pain. Lord, may you help us and give us the strength to forgive those who have wronged us. Please open our eyes to how we have wronged other people. Please give us the strength to be humble in admitting our faults to others, to seek out forgiveness, and to also seek out reconciliation. We are your body, and we are called to forgive, not because this life is about us, not because of the benefits of forgiving that are for us, but because it is about you, your meta-narrative, your big story, which is the gospel message and redemption of your people in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you so much for the ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus. And Lord, thank you for bringing it to us so that we can show it to other people in hopes that they would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior as well. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect 
to introduce yourself today.